ever feel like God is silent when you need Him most? Well, get in line. I think we've all felt that way. Even the Psalms are filled with passages asking God not to hide His face from us. God's silence or hiddenness is a common question, and the answers may surprise you. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Dr. Pat Zuckerin is a Christian scholar, author, speaker, and prominent apologist who speaks all over the world giving reasons for faith in Christ. Recently, Dr. Zuckerin hosted a conference in Hawaii which featured prominent scholars and communicators speaking on today's hot topics. Today you'll hear from Dr. Gary Habermas in the second in a two-part series on the silence of God. And when you get a chance, check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find resources there on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, past shows, interviews, articles, books, and more. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zuckerman presents Dr. Gary Habermas with part two on the silence of God. Now, let me get to the kind of emotional gravitas that people experience when they think God should be writing them a love letter, and I've written to them for 20 years and I've never heard from them, kind of objection. And I've got three major points to make in an application. I'm going to try to answer the Christian's objections that says, the objections that say, that's not the way Scripture says it should be. It looks to me like God's breaking his promises. Those are the kind of objections I want to answer. By the way, Scripture says the same thing. Psalm 44, if you want to read a real shake-up chapter, you should read that one sometime. The psalmist cries out that God's broken his promises. Israel did nothing. That's what he says. Sounds like my kids. I didn't do a thing. And then the psalmist says, you ready? Awake, you who sleep, and come and help us. And the psalm like ends. A lot of the psalms have that kind of complaint, and they have an upturn at the end. This one just says, please help us, and it's over. There are psalms that ask God why certain things are going down, but there are also psalms, if you know where to look, there are psalms that blame God with doing wrong things. Why are those chapters in, why are those verses and chapters in Scripture? Well, among other things, I think it's because God is honest and honestly portrays what we go through. And you know what you learn? Silence is one of the most commonly asked questions of all time. Here's the first objection. But I prayed, dot, dot, dot. I prayed for 20 years. I want my child to be saved so badly. Now, you've got to be careful. Those kind of prayers where somebody else's free will is involved, that depends on your view of free will. I, you know, I don't want to start this war, but if some of you want to bring it up during the Q&A time, you can ask your pastor. <laughs> we'll leave those with him. He has to stay with you long after we go, so those are the questions you can ask him. All right, first point I want to make about prayer. Prayer, you learn in theology classes, but we don't often say this in churches. Prayer is conditional. It is not unconditional. In fact, you can argue that all prayer is conditional. There's no prayer. You can argue this. You don't have to. But you can argue that all prayer, let's put it this way, no prayer will get an automatic response. Say, what about trusting Christ your Savior? That's a good question. But there are people in the New Testament who, let's say, appear to be trusting Christ. I can think of an example of Peter. I can think of an example of Jesus. 
And Jesus walks away from them. It says, he knew their hearts. What's the condition for trusting Christ? Really wanting to say, I do. Really wanting to make a commitment. Not saying, can I have the benefit and not doing it. But that's a condition. We could argue about that one. But I think prayer is conditional. And it's presented that way in Scripture. So one of the chapters in this book, I give, I think it's six conditions for prayer. I'm not going to go through them this morning. But some of them, we have no control over. I mean, you can go down the list and you can say, confess your sins is one of them. Okay, I can do that before I pray. I can do it seriously. Okay, done that. Pray in Jesus' name. I can do that. By the way, that, some people think that's more than just saying in Jesus' name. It means coming to the Father through the Son. Other details there. But still, yeah, we can do that. And it gets a little harder. Be in his will. Oh, yeah. I think I'm doing pretty well there. But be obedient. Oh, that's tough. But I'm, I'm really trying. Pray according to his will. Oh, wow. I think this one might be his will, but what if his will is to let somebody else have their will? Judas had his will. Of course, he's not the only example. Job's friends, they could say what they wanted to. How about this one? In the Old Testament, sometimes God says he doesn't answer prayer because the nation was in sin. Now, I could just hear the Old Testament scholars saying, ah, can't go there. Because Israel was a theocracy, U.S. is not a theocracy, conditions don't. But I still wonder if there's a principle there that sometimes the righteous don't get their prayers answered because there are more unrighteous who are doing other things that displease God. And if that's the case, we have issues today as a nation or as a worldwide people. So we can't control. Enough about that point. But don't say... I've been praying for 20 years, especially if you're praying for somebody to be converted, because that brings up multiple issues. Not just that prayer is always conditional, but that that person has a will. And I think as parents, if, if you're praying about children, we know that. All right, let me tackle the two tougher ones. But the Bible says, otherwise known as, but God promised. And this is an intriguing accusation of God, uh, accusation against God for silence, because you never notice, what makes a favorite verse? Something that says exactly what I want to be obtained in my life, and I'm going to claim that verse, regardless of the context, regardless of what happens in the area. And I want to tell you something. There are way more verses in the scripture. As preparing for this manuscript, I went through and tried to work through as many as I could. Many, many dozens. There are way more verses in Scripture that tell us that we're going to be judged or that we're not necessarily going to get what we pray for or in spite of our prayers, we're going to have issues in the world. There's going to be problems. There's going to be persecution. There's many more of those verses than the pray for it and you'll get it verses. Many more. And not just in the whole Bible, I cut, it, I, went down, I cut it down by books and by chapters. 
The book in the New Testament that seems to say the most, you can have what you want, certainly one of them, is the book of John. And in the Old Testament, it's the book of Psalms. But why do we pay attention to the, I'm, I'm arguing a context argument now, why do we pay attention so much to the beautiful verses in Psalms that say we'll get what we ask for and ignore all the verses before, during, and after that say you'll have issues? Well, because those aren't my favorite verses. <laughs> why not? I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of both of two things in my notes. Uh, a contradictory comment in the same context, and a take the whole thing in context, take the larger passage. The first one, a contradictory comment. Because I've done two books on, written two books on doubt, and I'll tell you folks right now, one's out of the table, the Thomas Factor, and it's out of print. But I'll tell you this to show you that my point here is not to sell books. On my website, GaryHabermas.com. There's a lot of video, audio, lectures. Most of it's on the resurrection, but there's other topics. And under the books tab in the upper, upper left, my two out of print doubt books are there. I say that because you can download chapters, you can take them, you can give them to people, use them, there's no charge. So take it, copy it, and give the material to somebody if, if you'd like. But because I've done two books on doubt, I get people that I have, I have no idea who they are. And they'll say things like, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not when you talk to me. They send me an email. Isn't that an incredible email to get? How about this email I got one time from an agnostic? He said, help, help, please talk to me. I don't want to go to hell. That was the very first email I got from him, inviting me to witness to him. That's nice. How about this one? One from a mother who said, please help my son. He's He's, walk, he's an adult, and he's walking away from his faith. Will you please talk to him? Will you please get involved? One time I got a, an email from a gal like this, and I rarely call Eileen over and say, read this email. But this one didn't appear to be overly private, and I just wanted her just to see the kind I get sometimes. And this gal said this. She said, I read your book. I'm having issues. I think you're crazy if you think... <laughs> This stuff works. I'm charismatic. I'm the lay director of evangelism in my church, but I'm not doing it anymore because my child just died. If you have, here's how she ends the letter. If you have the guts, you'll call me. Phone number. I called Eileen in and she read it and she said, whoa, you better call her. And she walked out. <laughs> better call her. Well, I called her, and our first phone call lasted for four hours. Second phone call lasted for two hours. That's six hours. At one point in the phone call, she knew scripture well, and at one point in the phone call, she said, here's all I want to know. Remember, she told you she's charismatic. Here's all I want to know. Is James 5 in your Bible? Do you know what she meant? James 5 is the healing passage called the elders, and the prayer of faith will Save that person. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what, you know, save and raised up and what that means. But, but she didn't say all that. She just said, all I want to know is, is James 5 in your Bible? And here's how I responded. I said, is James 1 in your Bible? You know James 1? Count it all joy when you have problems. In fact, I wrote an email to a guy this week, a friend of mine. I'm a board member, a fellow board member to school, uh, college. I told him I couldn't be there for a board meeting. I said, I can't be there. I'm in Hawaii. He wrote back and he said, 
Oh yeah, you're really suffering for Jesus. Try reading James 1. <laughs> All right, so that was my question. Is James 5 in Scripture? So I got a question for you. Is James 1 in your Bible? The, the two questions were just that terse. And here's what I heard on the other end of the line. Oh, no. And I said, what? She said, I never thought about that. What? Said, oh, this, this is incredible. She goes, I think I know what James 5 means. This is the lady talking. I think I know what James 5 means. But it's got to be consistent with James 1. And my view of James 5 isn't consistent with James 1. So I've got to work on this. I said, well, that's good. I, you know, I appreciate it. Of someone's heart who says, I'm going to try to get these two verses together. Now listen, I'm not going to, stay, I'm not going to start flipping up the, the, the um, PowerPoint and say, this is the authoritative interpretation of James 5. James 5 is difficult. But I don't think James forgot what he said in chapter 1. I don't think he was schizophrenic in four, chap four chapters later. <laughs> How do you put those two together? The same James who says, pray and you'll be healed, says counter to joy when things happen to you that you don't expect and things don't go the right way. All right, how about the same context? I'll have to do this one real fast. But John 14 to 16 has three of those well-known promises. Whatever you pray for, I'll do it. Three of those famous texts. John 14 to 16. I don't have time to go through these. But... Jesus says, pray in my name and you'll get it. He just says, you'll get it once. But why don't we read the context? Here's what we see in the same context. The same context that says, whatever you pray for, you'll get. Same chapters. You get this in chapter 15, verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Whoa, who said anything about persecution? You just said whatever I prayed for, I could get out of it. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to pray that there be no persecution. Sorry, you're having persecution. <laughs> Whoa, well, I don't know how to put those two verses together, but I don't think Jesus was so senile that he forgot he just said it. In fact, let me just give you a couple more, same context. 16.2, they'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Whoa, Lord, listen, when I signed up, I didn't, I didn't go for this martyrdom stuff. I know people do that, but, you know, that's not my cup of tea. I like the whatever you pray you'll get stuff. Sorry. <laughs> Same context. One more. Last verse in John 16. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world, but you are going to have issues. Whoops. What about my favorite verse? Yeah, like I said, you're going to have issues. Which is sort of another way of saying are James 5 and James 1 in the same book. Now watch what happens in John 17. Some people say this is the greatest of all the prayers in Scripture. And Jesus is praying to his Father. And in chapter 17, 14 and 15, he says, The world has hated them, his followers. Again, there's that negativity. The world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I argue in the book that that may be a pattern for how these two verses can go together. This is not the only verse that does this. And here's my take on putting James 5 and James 1, 
three verses in John 14 to 16 with three other verses in John 14 to 16. Psalms being the verse with the most, pray for it, you'll get it, comments, but also, as nearly as I can tell, three to one verses that say you're going to have issues. Here's the best way I can put it together. And I've got one more objection to get to. But from these verses, here's how I try to get it together in my mind. I'm still, this is still a work in progress. I don't think people who are doing this sort of stuff should have views that claim they have a corner in the market. Just listen to me and Habermas will tell you everything about all this stuff. No, I think we're going through the Christian life together and we need to work through these texts. But here's how I see it. Scripture will sometimes remove you from your suffering. That's why I told you I wanted to start, had a little more time this morning, and why I wanted to start with God being active in the world. I think God will remove us from our suffering many times. Which we ought to be looking, though, and give him the credit when he does it. So many times we don't even notice what he does, and we keep crying out for the things we think he should be doing that he doesn't. We miss the other ones. But here's my take, that God is saying, I will always be with you in your problems. Sometimes I will remove you from them. Not always. But I will always hold your hand through the struggle. John 17. I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you be with them in the world. That's, you know, there's many verses. I love the verses in Psalms that say, hold our hand and take us through the storm. So you say, well, why should I pray then? Well, God's sovereign. And God will often keep us from suffering. I don't have time to tell the story at all. But I'll just tell you the statement. Within six months of my wife's death, I sat by the bedside of my dying grandmother. I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world because I have two sets of parents. And everybody who knows me knows I talk equally about my two parents and my two grandparents. I lived with them when I was going to college. And I was very close with them other times. And my grandmother was on her deathbed and I flew to Detroit to be with her. And I sat with her for about two weeks, every day in the hospital. And the medical doctor pointed to me and he said, your grandma will be dead in 24 hours. And he said it real, he was an agnostic. And he said, she will be dead in 24 hours, 48 hours at the most. Here, sign this paper. And it was a do not resuscitate form. We had a little family prayer meeting that night by telephone. The next day, all her symptoms were gone. You know what she had? 87 years old, she had just had a stroke, two different kinds of pneumonia, and congestive heart failure. This was Tuesday night. The symptoms were gone Wednesday morning. What's evidence of that? By Friday, she was released from her room, 87 years old. Now here's what I can't answer. I got a call from Newsweek magazine. I have no idea how they got my number. We're doing an issue on prayer. Talk to us. Reader's Digest picked it up. Talk to us. Talk to you what? I said, call Richard Foster. I'm not an authority on prayer. No, we want to hear your story. Now, here's what I can't answer. Why did my wife die and six months later my 87-year-old grandmother was spared? I don't know. But here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And you women, this may be your favorite verse in the Bible. Let God be God and all men be liars. (laughs) But I love that verse. Here's another verse I love. Must not the God of all the world do rightly? Those are two of my favorite verses. Let God be God and all men be liars, and must not the God of all the world do rightly? Yes, he must. God, we talked about that Wednesday night, for those of you who are here. God cannot do anything else but his nature. Okay. That's my take so far on these verses. 
Okay, third point. And this one is the one, strangely enough, people put, seem to put the most emphasis on. But when I read my Bible, God's always getting people out of trouble. Really? Yeah. Every time something's happening, he takes them out of it. Really? What Bible are you reading? And I'll say teasingly, I'll say, so you want it just like the New Testament times? Yeah, just like New Testament times. And to get my point across, I'll say, okay. What are you thinking? Crucified right side up? Upside down? Stone like the brother of Jesus? Don't you think he thought he could get a pass? Paul? Beheaded? Peter crucified upside down? Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross? Thomas killed by a mob? Stephen stoned? Which of those do you want to sign up for? But, but seriously, there's a, there's a more important thing here. So I took that objection seriously and I went through the New Testament and I counted every circumstance which in human terms it had been very convenient if that person were taken from the struggle. Guess how often they're taken from the struggle? Almost never. I was doing this once and a hand shot up. What about Paul in Acts chapter 16? He was in jail, the shackles fell off, the jail cell came open and he got to lead the Philippian jailer to the Lord. Do you ever read the whole context? He and Silas had just been whipped. What do you think he thought after the first one? Oh, man, I hope God intervenes. Two, I hope he intervenes before. What did he think after three, four, five, six, and seven? And someone's going, he got out of it without any hurt. (laughs) Now, Peter got out and went to the crowd, uh, went to the Christian home where they were praying, and the little girl slammed the door in his face. She didn't expect to see him. I thought God always took people out of things like that. Jesus had eight circumstances like that in his life. He never got out scot-free from any of them. Never. So my three conclusions. Prayer is conditional. Number two, if you have your favorite verses, that's wonderful. But look at them in their context and pay attention to contrary and qualifying verses. And fourthly, if you want to claim that God always did that in New Testament times, be ready for a rough ride. Because we might get out of them more today than they did then. Let me remind you about the thing we were talking about in suffering Wednesday night. As in all things, Jesus is our example. And we love the verse in Hebrews 4. Tempted at all points like as we yet without sin. We ignore the verse one chapter later. Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. If you think you're going through things that nobody's ever gone through before, you know, I'd say, I'd say, been there, done that. To me, what my family went through in 95 was the worst suffering anybody could go through, but that's what we all think about our worst suffering. If you think you're going through suffering right now, and you think God's let you down, and you'd love to get a love letter, but he's ignoring you, just remember, prayer is conditional. Look at your favorite verses in their context. And if you count in the New Testament, they didn't get out of their fixes very often. And then ask yourself the most difficult question of all. If Jesus had to learn obedience by the things he suffered, you deserve to suffer less than Jesus. I've never had anybody tell me they can answer this question and get out of their suffering. If Jesus learned obedience by his suffering, why do we think we should already get, always get out of it, and why do we dare to be upset with God when it doesn't go our way? Didn't just go back to Hebrews 2. He was completed by his suffering. So my two questions for you, 
Do you deserve to suffer less than Jesus? Do I deserve to suffer less than Jesus? And number two, do I learn faster than Jesus? Can't go there. If you can't go there, then guess what? God's got a purpose in what you're going through. Of course, the Bible says that anyway. And we blow it because we think prayer is unconditional. We think only our favorite verses are the ones that are in the Bible. And we think that he always took people out of the New Testament, and they're all false. So I'd say, like we said Wednesday night, bottom line, I'll do more about this in the emotional doubt one, start telling yourself the truth. I'm pointing to myself, too. Start telling yourself the truth. Don't tell yourself God's let you down. Don't say God's broken his promises. Don't say God's not God, because remember what I said Wednesday night? God couldn't break a promise if he wanted to, which he doesn't. But God can't be other than God. He is bound by his nature. I mean, he can only be who he is, just like we can all be who we are. So bottom line, Jesus suffered for you. He learned obedience by his suffering. He was completed by his suffering. We may have to go through a lot of suffering. Just remember, the other side of the cross is resurrection. Well, we've run out of time today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. And you can get this entire series on the silence of God and more of Dr. Gary Habermas's teaching at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. And by the way, you have the opportunity to support Evidence and Answers financially and prayerfully at our website. You'll help keep this program on the air and online when you purchase our resources or offer your tax-deductible gift. Just click on the Donate button on the front page of evidenceandanswers.org. We really appreciate your support. We think that people all over the world should have the opportunity to hear a clear, intelligent presentation on the truth of the claims of Christ. Just click the Donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker.